and welcome to Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to conversations with people who want to grow and spread empathy throughout the world. Hello, everyone. Today I'm joined by Lamia Morshed, who is the director of the Eunice Center. Um, Lamia, you've held that position for 14 years, and I want to thank you so much for coming to this episode and being part of Purposeful Empathy. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be here. For those who don't know um, about social business, could you kind of explain what the concept means and why it's so special? Um, Basically, a social business is a purpose-driven business where the entire purpose of the business is to solve a societal problem, a predetermined societal problem. Uh, So it's a business in that it uh, charges for its uh, service or product, uh, but only to enable it to cover its costs so the business can grow. The entire purpose it, uh, is to solve the problem. And since uh, it's a, a purpose-driven business, it doesn't aim to make any profits uh, beyond recouping initial capital for its investors. So the investors will invest into a social business because they care about a problem that they would like to solve. Um, and the impact of the business is, uh, or the bottom line of the business, is the social impact that business has in uh, in how it achieves the the, uh, the social goal that it set out to achieve. Now, can you maybe share a little bit about the, the history of the concept? Because I would imagine that anybody who's hearing about this for the very first time would say, well, what's the point of having a business that doesn't make profit? Um, and, and, and could you give some context to this? Yeah, so actually, it, it's not right that it doesn't make profit. It doesn't make uh, it doesn't give dividends to its investors, but it has to make profit. Otherwise, it's not a business. So it's it's a non-dividend business. That means the investor will put in, say, a hundred thousand dollars. He or she can recoup that hundred thousand U.S. dollars over time, but he or she chooses not to take anything beyond that. So the investor is choosing to invest in this business as a way to have some kind of impact in society uh, on an issue that he or she cares about. So that's, that's so, you know, uh, people uh, run businesses to make money. This is a business to have impact. And, you know, uh, we basically say that, you know, people have uh, the desire to do um, uh, good in society. And they usually do that through charities or through welfare programs or through government programs that are based on donations and grants a social business, if it's done properly, will recover your money for you. So you can then put it in into something else and the money recycles. So we are basically arguing that a social business um, will be, if it's done properly, will be more impactful than a charity in that it can grow and it, doesn't, it can uh, reduce its dependence on outside uh, grants and donations all the time. So that's uh, what a social business is. Um, and you asked about the context. It's basically... Uh, uh, your audience may have heard of Grameen Bank and the whole microcredit concept. 40 years ago in Bangladesh, Professor Yunus started a specialized bank for the poor, whose purpose was to help poor people uh, get small amounts of money to help their income generating activities, um, to gain income and to basically improve their lives. Um, This was the very first social business created by Professor Yunus uh, because he, as a person who started it, he doesn't own a single share in it. He did this entire enterprise to have an impact on society, to help uh, poor disenfranchised women, to have a source of income, uh, uh, 
to have a source of finance to support the income generating activities and let them help them change their own lives. Um, and, you know, it started in just one village with 27 people, but today it's reaching more than 9 million people all over the country. And it's the largest rural bank in Bangladesh. And it's completely self-sufficient uh, in financing. It doesn't need any outside money. Uh, so it's extremely powerful. It doesn't, uh, it's not a drain on any public resources. It doesn't rely on grants or donations. And it's a completely self-financing system that's providing finance and savings uh, products to uh, people who are traditionally left out of the banking system. So that was the first social business uh, created in Bangladesh. But along the way, uh, he and his colleagues created many more uh, other enterprises addressed to providing um, solar panels, uh, uh, providing education, providing healthcare services, pro providing clean water. And every time there was a concept of creating it as a business so that over time it could, didn't have to rely on outside money anymore. And every time it had a very specific social purpose that was trying to achieve. So, uh, so, they, it's, so it started decades ago, but I would say over the last um, 15 years, uh, uh, and in fact, just before Professor Yunus and Ramin Bank uh, received the Nobel Prize, uh, he had started crystallizing this thought as a, a, a special type of business, a business with the purpose which is uh, geared towards uh, changing uh, things in society for the better. Um, and in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he actually laid out the concept very elaborately. And he said that he, he argued that this is actually a missing piece in the global economic system. We have business that's driven by, uh, by the desire to make lots of money for yourself. And he argues that that's really distorted uh, the whole uh, economic system. And if we have another business which is geared towards doing social good and achieving social impact, we would have a very different uh, global economy and uh, global uh, system. I know that speech very well because it's assigned reading for my students in my social entrepreneurship class. It is. Uh, I'll make sure to include it, uh, a link to it in the in the notes for this um, for this episode. Um, so you've given an example of the origin story of the social business through the Grameen uh, Bank. What other more recent uh, social business stories, maybe even uh, some that um, were founded in Canada or in the West, um, can you speak of and, and, and how they're, they're creating impact? Um, well, you know, uh, just to uh, uh, speak more about the microfinance, microcredit piece, that, that had very early followers in many countries because people, uh, until Grameen Bank came about, people believed that rural credit didn't work for the poor. Uh, and non-collateralized people don't uh, were not required to give any kind of assurance or any security to get these loans. And it was imitated in many, many countries and including uh, several in Canada that I'm aware of in, in the 90, late 80s and 90s, um, targeting indigenous uh, communities. So the Grameen Bank experience came to the world uh, very early on. And, you know, I mean, I, I always want to include the microcredit story and the social business story because it's the first and probably the most important social, social business. Um, but since then, as I said, it diversified to many areas, things like healthcare, education, um, uh, nutrition. Uh, and that's the whole thing about social businesses that it can be uh, targeted to any uh, uh, aspect of human living um, and solve whatever problem. And it's not necessarily something that just 
uh, addresses needs of poor. It can be uh, something like a social business to address um, uh, drug addiction among the wealthy, for example. But you know, so it's not limited to just uh, uh, poverty reduction or to the poor. Um, so we've had uh, many social businesses uh, created uh, both in Bangladesh and around the world. Uh, some in as as joint ventures uh, with companies that have found this idea compelling. And there's the famous story, I guess you know, about Grameen uh, and Danone, which is the French uh, uh, dairy company. It's one of the global leaders. So they created in Bangladesh a joint venture uh, to produce a special yogurt that targets malnutrition among rural children. So uh, they looked at what was missing in the diets of kids in the rural areas in Bangladesh um, and found that uh, zinc, iron, iodine, protein, vitamin A, that there was obviously other than uh, the protein and fat, there were also micronutrients that were missing in their diet that was stunting both physical and uh, mental growth. Uh, so they, they, Grameen and Danone came up with this idea of creating a yogurt that would um, help these children uh, develop normally. And basically, uh, if you take this yogurt um, uh, you know, every day for a period of a year, basically the kids are coming out of malnutrition. And this was a joint venture that was created um, in 2005, and it uh, produces this very delicious yogurt, and it's uh, about a half a million uh, kids are consuming this uh, uh, yogurt all over the country. And the entire purpose of this business, to illustrate, is not how much money do we make for the investors, because both Grameen and Danone signed that they will never take a penny out of this as profits uh, beyond just taking back their initial capital. So, what is the purpose of the business? Is uh, how do we solve the problem of child malnutrition in Bangladesh? So the board, when they meet at the end of the year, they will look at how many kids have we brought out of malnutrition this year instead of how much dividend have we given to the investors. So to illustrate that point. And it's a social business that impacts in um, other ways as well because it's uh, sourcing milk from the rural areas. It's uh, located the factory, so it, hire, it works with local farmers. It's helping to upgrade uh, the quality of their milk. It's helping to provide um, employment to, uh, uh, to uh, you know, people working in the rural areas because the factory is located there. And even in the, uh, in the whole process of delivery, it's hiring people. So it's got multiple positive impacts. Um, and the interesting thing about the Danone story is that this one uh, social business in, in Bangladesh impacted so much on this global company that they decided to create an entire uh, fund, a global fund to finance a social business called Danone Communities. And now they are uh, looking for and financing social businesses in the area of clean water and nutrition and health around the world. Um, and uh, so it's had a big impact on the company itself. And I think even though it's a small business in Bangladesh, it's had the effect of changing the entire culture and outlook of this very giant company, right from the board to, to um, you know, even you have employees who are employ uh, involved in uh, Danone communities and they, they contribute to it as well. So the shareholders of the con uh, company contribute to the fund, but the employees also ask to be part of it and they are contributing to the fund. So this is a question of, uh, you know, uh, you said, why would somebody uh, invest in a company uh, that doesn't make any money? because people derive happiness from other things as well. Uh, you know, the employees asked to be part of that fund because they said, 
we want to be part of a, a, a positive change in Bangladesh or in another country. Uh, so that's to the question that um, people are motivated by more than the desire to make money and accumulate for themselves. Yeah, that is uh, such an important point because when you read, there are you know seven principles of social businesses and the last one, number seven, is do it with joy. And I always find that very compelling because we are human beings and we're complex and the structure and incentives of our society seem to suggest that as human beings, we're driven by this all important profit motive. When we know anecdotally and throughout history that we have a lot that motivates us that has nothing to do with how it could benefit us, but what we can be of service to one another. And that's why I'm really attracted to the concept of social business and, and the whole social impact space. I'm curious, given that you've worked so long with Dr. Yunus and you've heard him say probably many times the idea of, you know, there is such a thing as a science fiction, right? And science fiction often uh, is is a precursor to what actually happens in real life when when, um, machines and and scientific discoveries catch up with uh, our capacity to imagine. He talks about this idea of social fiction, like imagining what would be possible for us um, is required before we can actually get there. In his most recent book, um, I wonder if you could share a little bit about his vision around three zeros and and what work Unicenter is doing to bring that to life. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, you mentioned about what motivates people. There's one of the quotes by Professor Yunus, which I find very compelling, because he says, making money is happiness, but making other people happy is a super happiness and that you know people have a lot of people are driven more by that and he says that if people get a taste of that they want more and more and more of that it's just that um, and uh, uh, this will relate to the question you asked is that we are so kind of uh, kind of uh, brainwashed by our education system and our textbooks and the policies and institutions that we've inherited that we don't uh, have a chance to explore actually uh, you know, in, in, in Bangladesh, uh, success is, uh, you know, coming out of university and getting a job uh, at a multinational company. That's really the highest uh, thing to aspire for. Uh, and people are not really questioning that, is it really the meaning of my life to put my best uh, energies and creativity to helping make somebody in some far off land richer than they already are? Can that be, you know, the meaning of, of course, I make a good living for myself as well in the process, but you know, is it ultimately the meaning of my life to do that? So this is, uh, goes to that, that we have to really question what it is. And the experience with Grameen Bank really made him believe that change is possible, that people can change their own lives uh, through their own efforts. Um, and that uh, poverty, reducing poverty to half, uh, which Bangladesh has done, thanks to Grameen Bank and other organizations like it, that if it's possible to have poverty, then it's possible to take poverty to zero. So one of the, th- the book that you mentioned is called World of Three Zeros. And he talks about uh, trying to, the, the three main goals that he's trying to achieve through the work and through the movement is zero poverty, zero unemployment, and zero net carbon emissions. Um, and the zero poverty is something he feels very confident about because the um, Bangladesh was one of the, um, poorest countries in the world, but has it was one of the first countries to achieve all of the Millennium Development Goals in, uh, by in uh, in advance uh, 
of the date, uh, 2008, and now it's set to uh, to uh, achieve the sustainable development goals. You know, uh, Bangladesh is steadily moving towards that. So if you can get to half uh, poverty, bringing poverty to half, then by extension, you can bring it to zero. So that's something, and it's not just fanciful, it's something that's been demonstrated in a country with lots of challenges like Bangladesh. Uh, similarly, about the zero unemployment is another thing that he thinks that's a flaw in our theory books is that everyone is very oriented towards getting jobs. As I mentioned, those kids in Bangladesh, they come out and the uh, expectation is that they will uh, join some company, work for someone. That's something that he's also challenged. He's saying that people should not just think about being a job uh, seeker, but also a job creator. Everyone has it in them to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and our economics books kind of define entrepreneurs as a very special breed of person with special avidity. He's saying that's not true. Everyone has uh, the potential to become an entrepreneur and they can become entrepreneurs at the grassroots. And that also helps to uh, uh, create a strong foundation for your economy. And the microcredit entrepreneurs of Grameen Bank, these 9 million uh, uh, women who have very little education are all entrepreneurs who've been successful. They've changed their lives through it. So that's the other thing is that saying that we don't have to have unemployment, which is defined by how many people have jobs, because outside of that type of employment, people can also also be entrepreneurs creating their own wealth and their own enterprise, and that we should uh, build institutions and policies to support that. The informal sector, this is something he's been talking a lot about during the pandemic, is the informal sector is kind of exactly by that word, informal, it's kind of marginalized as something that's not important, that uh, people should be trying for the formal sector. Even the wording diminishes the importance of that, whereas he's saying that part is actually the most important sector for most countries like ours, like Bangladesh, where people are making their own livelihood. And instead of saying, oh, uh, this is something to, uh, to, to penalize because they're not following regulations, that they don't have licenses, something we should be encouraging because people are using their own efforts and energy to create their own uh, income and wealth. And then they end up hiring other people to work for them. And, you know, and that's also a contribution to society rather than a drain on society. So as he said that zero unemployment is also uh, an artificial concept. And so zero unemployment, if you have entrepreneurship as well, is something that's achievable. And finally, the net carbon emissions, that's a, I guess, a log, uh, you know, a, a no brainer in the sense that we just have the one planet and uh, none of our other goals uh, will make any sense if we don't, not able to have a world where we can save uh, the, the climate, save the 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 natural world, uh, the way we can have the uh, level of emissions that allows us to continue to sustain life on this planet. So that's something that's, and also where he would say that the traditional way of doing things, traditional business has contributed because there's such uh, a premium, uh, such a, you know, this race to make profit is everything else gets kind of, uh, thrown out in the process. It doesn't matter if you're destroying forests. It doesn't matter if you're polluting rivers. You have to get that bottom line. So that's also something that's very fundamentally wrong with this economic system and where we have to really uh, go back and see how we can do it, where we can have, um, uh, you know, people getting, having a good standard of living and being able to sustain themselves, but where also the planet and the climate and uh, the global natural resources are protected. 
Yeah, this really speaks to me because I often share with my students that I see social entrepreneurship and within that social business, both political by nature, as in it's challenging status quo on many fronts. At the same time in this yin-yang um, combo, I find that it's also kind of very spiritual. I use that word um, not from the context of, of, of religion per se, but just in terms of who we are as human beings, that we're, we're, we're more than just the body in which we inhabit, that there's something about us that animates our, our consciousness and animates our, our soul. I wonder if you would mind, I mean, maybe this is in the category of TMI, but you've worked for the UNIS Center for 15 years. I, I don't know you out of that context. I know you have a, a degree from LSE. I wonder if you would speak to how you personally have changed your um, philosophy of life or your perspective on the world based on what you've learned through this experience with the Eunice Center and the work of, of, um, of social business with Dr. Eunice? Yeah, so um, the thing is that, uh, so uh, 14 years with Eunice Center and the 14 years, pre, 13 years prior to that with Grameen Trust, which was helping to take the microcredit experience of Bangladesh all over the world. For me, that was a very compelling thing that something um, that was developed and was kind of indigenous to Bangladesh uh, was being picked up uh, by other countries where, you know, we, we were from a country where we kind of listened to what the donors had to say, what the rich countries had to say, dictates, follow the dictates of. And here there was something that we had come up from the bottom up in Bangladesh and where the rest of the world was learning. For me, that was a very compelling thing and which motivated me to come back to Bangladesh to work for um, uh, for Grameen. It, it helped for me, it helped uh, the, uh, 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 bring back the dignity of Bangladesh on the global map. So th this is a success story. And I think that's been a very big part of it for me. But also just the fact that what you said, I think when you talk about purposeful empathy is that, you know, when you tap into something which affects uh, other people, it, it makes you, it makes you, um, uh, gives you greater purpose in life I think you know when you think beyond just yourself or being part of a movement that's bigger than yourself I think that gives a lot of uh, uh, satisfaction and vindication and gratification and you know and I think and the more you are part of a work that impacts on the lives of people the more you want to be a part of it I think that's what professors keep saying it becomes like a, a, a something that you want more and more of because I think something like um, uh, getting money uh, for example after a while, I mean, what are you going to do with, and I've heard Professor Yunus say this, what are you going to do with your, you know, second billion dollars? I mean, how many yachts are you going to buy? How many houses are you going to buy? You know, there's a limit to that. Whereas this, where you're having an impact on the people around you, on the society around you, and it has a rippling effect all around. This is something that really gives meaning and a spiritual fulfillment, I would say. I think that's, that's very true. And I think it's probably just also the fact that the, what you mentioned about solidarity and being part of something bigger than yourself and that connection with people, uh, regardless of uh, their background or where they come from. I mean, for me, the global nature of this work is also something that uh, keeps me hooked, I think. Um, and I think, uh, yeah. As a last question, I wanted to mention, and I and I think this is a really important um uh, statement is that 113 world leaders, including 19 Nobel laureates and heads of state and political leaders, international NGOs, whole whack of people, 
have signed a pledge initiated by the Unicenter, in fact, to declare COVID-19 vaccines a global common good. Can you share more about this? Because this, I would love to see that happen. Yeah, so we uh, launched this uh, on Professor Yunus's 80th birthday on the 28th of June. And uh, the idea is that, you know, in order for, I mean, the pandemic is ongoing. I think uh, all over the world, uh, after the first wave, we kind of thought it would go away, but now it's uh, resurging and there are many countries fa facing a second wave all around the world. So we now realize that this is not, the virus is not really going away uh, anytime soon. And there's an understanding that, uh, even if we have therapeutics, even if we have all the different measures to try to limit the the uh, the virus, uh, you know, through social distancing or masks and so on, ultimately the solution will be a viable vaccine. And uh, the idea is that uh, that if if it's going to a vaccine is going to be effective, it has to be available to everyone because you can't have just wealthy nations or the wealthy people within the nations have access to the vaccine. Uh, and the rest not getting it because that's not going to solve the problem. The universal universality of access is key to making it effective. So the idea of a global common good, and if you look at the appeal, it's um, there on our website, www.vaccinecommongood.org, is that it says that pharmaceutical companies will, of course, be um, uh, compensated for all of the research um, that goes in, all the cost that goes into develop the vaccine, but that in order for it to be uh, effective uh, and it should be made free uh, of patent so that production facilities all over the world can get the recipe or whatever it is to make this uh, uh, produced everywhere simultaneously. So it's, you know, we, we're seeing uh, this vaccine nationalism, we're seeing uh, countries wanting to hoard vaccines. We're seeing so this goes against that because we're saying that actually the problem will not be solved if only some people have access. And the only way, and the the point is that this is not a new idea. There's a precedent for this. The polio vaccine developed developed by Jonas uh, Salk in 1955. He refused to patent it because he says he was asked why haven't you patented it. He said it's like the sun. Can you patent the sun? So there is a precedent of this of and smallpox and polio have been eradicated because of the uh, programs to make it accessible uh, universally. So this common good um, appeal is basically asking, uh, uh, because this money is not an issue, this um, money and available from governments and foundations and businesses is to help compensate the farmers companies, but then make it available to be produced anywhere in the world. Uh, so we've been uh, campaigning on this. And as you said, I was amazed by how people signed up. I mean, we literally business leaders and rock stars, and we've just had one letter to them and they've said, please sign us on. So everyone obviously also feels that this is an important issue. And we've re recently been trying to have a, a, a UN uh, resolution about this uh, uh, at the General Assembly. So that is adopted. Uh, it, it would be in the General Assembly as a non-binding resolution, but at least it creates the the momentum and the moral uh, ground for the world, uh, the countries of the world to say that, yes, this is what we want. Uh, so we've been continuing with that. Um, and uh, uh, Professor Yunus basically says that this availability of vaccines should not be governed by the desire by pharmaceutical companies to make so, so much money off of people's miseries. Um, and, you know, it could be that it's only just for five years that they give the patent and then they can 
make profits after that, but let's make it accessible to everyone uh, when it's available. So anybody watching can sign the open letter. What other pressure can um, we put on pharmaceutical companies to, to adhere to this? So we've actually teamed up with Oxfam and UNAIDS and we, uh, uh, there was a COVID survivors letter where people who've lost a family member who themselves have uh, recovered from COVID or know somebody who's lost the battle against COVID have signed up a letter to pharmaceutical companies telling them that this is the a time to do this because this is something for the survival of, uh, you know, for for the whole planet, it's it's a compelling issue now. Uh, so you can talk to your representatives, you can talk to your politicians, local ones, global ones. You can write in the media about it. I think those are the things to do it. You can also sign the pledge. We've had, I think, nearly six thousand signatures on the on the pledge, and it's ongoing. It's, there's no time limit on it because we don't see, we don't even have a vaccine on hand yet. We keep hearing there'll be ones coming, but uh, we think that this uh, this uh, arrangement of making it a common good should be agreed and decided even before the vaccine comes out so that whatever arrangements are needed for production simultaneously in many countries can, those arrangements have to be made. Um, so I think writing about it, blogging about it, talking to people about it, publicizing our website, um, getting, oh, and people are signing on. So uh, on the 28th of June, we had a hundred persons sign on, but by, by, you know, September, we've had another 54 uh, global uh, leaders and influencers sign on, uh, you know, uh, as you said, pop stars and activists and Nobel laureates and professors and scientists. So that's still ongoing. The signature campaign, even for influential people, they're still signing on. We just had the French Red Cross write to us the other day saying we want to sign on to this, you know, on their own accord. We didn't even approach them. So it's something that obviously resonates right now. And I think it's goes to this more fundamental thing that we've been talking about through this is that we should really think about what is important in the world you know how can it be about profits and money above all else you know this is it's ultimately about our common humanity and our common uh, helping each other out and solidarity and it's a defining moment in humanity this pandemic and we should all come together uh, for that well, I couldn't imagine a better way to end this episode. Thank you so, so much for your time, Lamia. It was really great to speak. Thank you. Thanks, Anita.